clear um, that there are real serious issues going on here. And, uh, we need to keep that in mind. As, as Jonathan told us earlier, uh, our responsive readings are line up with the sermon text for that day. And there's a lot of similarities here. But let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And we need it. We need to know everything. Uh, for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know when your word is open before us. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith the same time tearing down our foolishness and self-righteousness and replacing it with real hope by pointing us to Christ. Because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. I remember a number of years ago, uh, we were watching the Academy Awards on TV. I have no idea why, um, because most years we haven't seen most of the movies that are nominated. Um, but I guess we were bored because we weren't watching. Um, and at one point, I remember uh, during the, the ceremony, the cameras would focus in on a particular celebrity and put his or her picture up on the big screen on stage, and then they would put a tagline underneath. So they'd show a picture of someone famous uh, sitting in the audience like George Clooney, and then underneath the picture would flash up uh, something supposed to be humorous like, last year I made more money than anyone else here. And then, of course, the camera would flash back to him and he would look all chagrined and and then they'd show a famous actress. And we have the tagline, I'm the most beautiful person here. And so she would have to look simultaneously embarrassed and in agreement with that sentiment. And then they show the person sitting next to her. And that, that tagline would come up and it'd say, it's true. She is the most beautiful person here. And then the first actress would have to go through the whole embarrassment charade again. And then they showed Jack Nicholson. And after a suitable pause, the tagline came up and it said, I'm the coolest guy in the room. And Jack just nodded his head like, yep, everyone knows this. And the cameras panned around to all the other people in the room. And they're all nodding their head in agreement with Jack. And so I got to wonder, and I was thinking about this, what if they could show pictures of some of the great uh, Old Testament characters? What would their taglines be? And uh, so Abraham's might uh, come up and it would say, I'm the father of all people. Or Moses might come up and say, I'm a true friend of God. And King David's would come up and it'd say, I'm a man after God's own heart. And Bathsheba's. And, you know, goes on. But how about Jeremiah? You know, we're five chapters into his book and what have we learned about him so far? Well, first off, it's become obvious he's not that popular. So perhaps his tagline would be, I'm the prophet nobody likes. And that'd be pretty accurate. And why don't they like him? Probably because he keeps telling them that they're big sinners. They like sinning. 
They love their idolatry far more than they love God. They claim to be faithful when they're so obviously unfaithful. And they have reached this condition where they're doing things that appalled God. It says in our text they do appalling things. At the same time, these things they love. It pleases themselves to do them. And despite their claims to be godly, they have become ungodly. And that's the problem with sin. Let's go back and look again at verse 1. The problem with sin, that's the first blank there. there there's a bunch of blanks this week. It says, uh, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. So God sent the prophet out into the streets of the city in order to teach him just how bad the problem really was and how complacent the people really were. And it's sort of like you say, no, Jeremiah, you're not exaggerating. You're not guilty of sensationalism. Everything you've said so far is true. In fact, it's worse than you thought. Because first, their depravity is total. In his desperate search through the streets, Jeremiah can't find even one person who held to the moral standards of the law or sought the truth. And although they swore by the Lord, it's merely lip service, verse 2, though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. And you can imagine the prophet sort of weaving his way through the congested streets. It's very interesting. He's staring into it, says, end of verse 3, faces harder than rock. I was like, what a hard word to say. You're looking at these people and their faces are harder than rock. Surely it can't be that bad. But it was. It doesn't change. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Romans 3. He writes in the same sense of anguish in Romans 3. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So Jeremiah is searching. He can't find one righteous person. And so he looks among the poor, but he dismisses them as the people who didn't really know the law, verse 4. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. So Jeremiah moves his search to the high rent district, verse 5. I will go to the great and I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. So he's thinking that the, the landed and the educated would not be as corrupted by sin, but he's wrong. And he was wrong then, and he would be just as wrong today. Today, much of our secular thinking has embraced the notion that people are about the business of improving themselves. Enough education, enough charity, enough economic progress, and eventually we're going to perfect the human race. It's not exactly what the Bible teaches. The revelation of Scripture in general, and this passage in particular, tells us that the problem is sin. And Jeremiah 
has realized that sin infects, and it infects the poor and the rich, young and old, male and female, educated and uneducated, the nice people and the nasty people. And all that prevents our catastrophic demise is the presence in the nation of those who in confession and repentance have turned their hearts towards God. But Jeremiah can't find them. Sin had overcome all the peoples, and so the depravity is total. Second thing we see is they're shameless. The people are shameless. Not only is their depravity total, meaning it's reached all the people, it's also without shame. We read in verse 30, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. Go back to verse 7. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. This is not an occasional clandestine visit under the cover of night. They're actually trooping in vast numbers without any shame whatsoever. They had ceased to be scandalous, and the old scandals have become commonplace. We jump over to chapter 6, look at verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. You know, blushing is not usually an intentional act. It just happens. Something happens and you're ashamed and you blush or you're embarrassed and you blush. But you don't have to think, well, I'm going to blush now. It just happens. At least, I hope. <laughs> you know, I hope it's not something you can turn on and off. But apparently, blushing is like a foreign concept to them. It's like they don't even know what he's talking about. And I was thinking about, you know, there was a time when our professional athletes would be ashamed when they were caught cheating. Not so much anymore. You know, on Wall Street, stockbrokers who already make a lot of money are regularly caught engaging in insider trading. A prominent minister in our own denomination was deposed a few years ago for his serial adultery. And yet this week he showed up again in my news feed promoting his new ministry. People who should be hanging their heads are selling their shamelessness for book contracts. And there's a lot of people, even within the church, who are encouraging him. And I can only shake my head. Going back to one of last week's verses, this could easily have been written today, Jeremiah 4.22. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. You can say that because it's actually in the Bible. So They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. And I wonder if we too are becoming a people who've forgotten how to blush. They haven't just forgotten how to repent, but they no longer feel any need to repent. They can't see their sin as sin. And so Jeremiah makes it clear, if there's no repentance for sin, then the only thing left is the penalty for sin. And that's the next point, the penalty for sin. Given their problem is total and shameless, 
God ultimately has to punish Israel or he's violating his own promises. He's questioned the people repeatedly. Verse 7, how can I pardon you? Verse 9, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? He repeats verse 9 and verse 29. They're exactly the same. And just as Jeremiah can't come up with one righteous man in Jerusalem, Judah can't come up with one good reason why God shouldn't punish her. And the very word of God that Judah's priests and prophets scorned, it says, was now like fire, and there the wood. They've been tested and found guilty, and the heat is on. Look at these verses, Jeremiah 5, 15. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. And Jeremiah 6, 1. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. Finally, Jeremiah 6, 22. Thus says the Lord, behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. These warnings are obvious references to the Babylonian invasion. It's not some fly-by-night country that's going to attack, but a large nation of ancient origins. And Jeremiah 6.23 says, they laid hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like a roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. They will destroy sons, daughters, flocks, herds, vineyards. It's total war. Nobody ever wants to hear how bad things are or how bad things are going to get. And when we tell them, we get accused of being too emotional or indulging in sensationalism. And the response is outrage and accusations of exaggeration. But the problem sounds like total depravity, and the penalty sounds like total destruction. Is there not one small strand of hope? Despite the grievous sin that's laid out over and over again by Jeremiah, God always holds out hope. Look at Jeremiah 5.18. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. The destruction will not quite be total. It's reminiscent of chapter 3 of the call of Israel to return to the Lord in the midst of her divorce from him. The prophetic hope is looking ahead to the gospel. So Jeremiah has confronted the people with this problem of total depravity, the penalty of total destruction, but he's held out the hope of God's mercy if only they would return to the Lord. Sounds like a no-brainer, right? Repent and return or be destroyed. But sadly, Jeremiah is forced to face the fact that his people are fools. His people are fools. And sometimes we don't quite get how harsh that is you know, and the way we use that word today, fool, is suggests someone who's silly or lacking in judgment. It has a playfulness to it. 
You could picture a clown or a court jester. But in the usage of the scriptures, the word fool is an indictment. Proverbs 1.7 teaches us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It doesn't just say they're not wise. They despise wisdom and destruction. The fool represents that person who's chosen to turn from God and as a result is moving farther and farther away from the light. There's a great example in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel. Nabal. He's an abusive husband of Abigail. His stubborn refusal to express gratitude eventually cost him his life. And he is presented as a personification of a fool. In fact, that's the meaning of his name. 1 Samuel 25, 25 says, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. One commentator translated that as, Nabal is his name, and folly is his game. But now we're being told the central characteristic of the people of Judah is foolishness. They have become a nation of Nabals. And what God thought was horrible, they thought was wonderful. What he hated, they loved. What they loved, he hated. In anguish, Jeremiah cries out, 521, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. And then Jeremiah reveals four things about the nature of foolishness. First, he says, foolishness is without understanding. Because of their deep-rooted aversion to what's good, their senses have become dull. He says, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. They're incapable of processing spiritual reality. They're without reverence. Foolishness is without reverence. Look at uh, Jeremiah 5.22. God asks, do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? Because they're not. They don't fear him. They don't tremble before him. The Lord revealed his omnipotence to Job in a series of staggering questions. And Job's response in Job 42 was, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And yet God brings essentially the same questions to these people. He doesn't get any response at all. He's speaking directly to them and they don't hear him. Judah has heaped scorn on the protective presence of God. Third, foolishness is without gratitude. They can't thank God for even the most obvious things. Jeremiah 5.24, they do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. They don't even thank God for their crops and for the rain and the sun and everything that makes it grow, upon which they depend for life. And the appeal to their hearts falls on deaf ears. Their self-centeredness is pervasive. Fools are so self-oriented, they lose their capacity for gratitude. Fourth or without, I said there was four things, there's actually five. Fourth is foolishness is without rest. And here's what I think is the key verse in this whole thing, Jeremiah 6.16. It's an incredibly revealing passage. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths 
where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Foolishness is a condition that results from an act of the will. It's a choice. That's why it's a moral issue and not just an intellectual issue. In refusing the good way, they forfeit their promised rest. We're a nation in desperate need of rest. You can witness the profusion of stress management courses, the rising problem of substance abuse. In our humanity, we're designed for rest. We're meant to be a Sabbath people. And the reality is, um, we're going to get that rest one way or the other. We can take it on the Sabbath or we can take it when we collapse. But sooner or later, we'll take it. Someone once told me that you know, when you collapse, they take it to the hospital. It's like consecutive Sabbaths. You didn't take them then, you're going to get them now. There's some truth to that. There's not all truth to that, but there's some truth to that. And last, foolishness is without a sacrifice. This is huge for the Israelites. God's offended by their sacrifice. Uh, chapter 6, verse 20. What used to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Ritual performances, fake worship, even when perfumed with imported incense, doesn't hide the stench of moral disobedience. If we do not come to God based on the sacrifice he's provided, there's no sacrifice of our own that we'll ever do. So we see the foolish people are without understanding, without reverence, without gratitude, without rest, and without an acceptable sacrifice. He's telling them, you're lost. You are lost. And because of their heart-level blindness and willful deafness and unknowing ingratitude, they have created a culture in which predators thrive. In which predators thrive. Look with me at Jeremiah 5, verses 26 to 28. It says, for wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they've become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Blind birds are easy prey for bird catchers. That's what fowlers are. They catch birds with snares, created to fly free. The inhabitants of Judah have become, verse 27 says, like a cage full of birds. They're trapped and helpless. And these people are evil. We learn some things about evil. We learn it's an organized system. These wicked men are referred to as houses. Judah hasn't fallen victim simply to random poachers, but it's a system of organized defiance. It's dedicated to bondage. Birds are created to fly, not to sit in cages. The system is out to catch us in its network. Evil's sophisticated. End of verse 27, they've become great and rich. 
The imagery suggests gluttony and obesity, eating up everything in sight, leaving nothing for the poor, which demonstrates that evil breeds social injustice. Verse 28, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. And then if you jump to Jeremiah 6, verse 13, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So Jeremiah is peering over this uh, gulf. He's sort of looking over the edge of a cavern. It's a giant wound, and they're trying to cover it with a Band-Aid. I was thinking, like the Israelites, sometimes we look for simple solutions to complex problems. We want easy answers to hard questions. We prefer quickness to patience and lightness over heaviness. And we pursue lightness in everything from our beer to our personal relationships. You can get great literary classics edited down to 10 minutes on audiobook. Who cares about the weightiness of these masterpieces? It's lightness we're after. It's lightness the false prophets are after saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's an appealing but a dangerous message. Probably most famous in 1940 when Neville Chamberlain was forced to resign as Prime Minister of Great Britain because his message had been, 1940, we have achieved peace in our time. And even as he spoke, Adolf Hitler was pushing the world to the brink of war. There are times when we heal the wound of our people lightly. So we have foolish people facing total destruction, looking over their borders at predator nations that want to swallow them whole. And God pushes Jeremiah out front again. And this time he's added to Jeremiah's job description. We see the prophet's job description really the end of our passage. More and more, Jeremiah is realizing this is serious stuff. Most of the prophets are like, I'm willing to say the hard stuff, but Lord, when, when can we get to the good stuff? And God's always saying like, when the mountains fall into the sea, then you get to the good stuff. And <laughs> you know, that's not what I signed up for. That's really not my calling, Lord. And yet, that's what happens with most of the prophets. They never get to the good stuff. At least the Old Testament prophets. And so Jeremiah is looking over this cavern, and, and now it just, life just got worse. Because at the very end of chapter 6, God tells him, I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. So the very words that Jeremiah is called to proclaim to Judah are words of testing. If you remember, when he was first called back in chapter 1, it says, The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Many people today don't believe the Scripture to be the word of God. And they pass such casual judgment on it, never realizing that it has judged them. When you read your Bible, it reads you. It's a tester of people. 
And whether they chose to believe that or not actually makes no difference. And Jeremiah can't help preaching these words to his people. He's later going to explain in chapter 20, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. So what do we do with all this? How does all of this stuff relate to us today? Let me go back in time to try to explain. I'm going to read you an Anglican minister. This man, by the way, is one of the greatest preachers in American history. His name was George Whitfield. And he preached the gospel on both sides of the Atlantic, and he literally changed the world. And this comes from a sermon he preached called On the Method of Grace. I'm only going to read you one long paragraph. You have to understand what he did here. He's preaching on Jeremiah 6.14. And Whitfield's a really cool guy. Apparently he had this great big booming voice. And because uh, they didn't have like sound systems and mics and any of that stuff. And he preached to like 20,000 people. And they never announced it. There was no social media. George will be here at this time. He just went out and started preaching and crowds showed up. And it was amazing. And so he's preaching on Jeremiah 6.14. It says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And he says, it's possible, O oh, hearers. So you have to remember, as I read this, he's living 300 years ago. So this is 1700s. It's in the language of the 1700s. But it's great stuff. At least I think it's great stuff. He says, O oh, hearers, it could be that some of you believe you are at peace with God when you're not. It could be that some of you have said to your souls, peace, peace, when there really is no peace. And you're at odds with God, and you're not reconciled with God. So he comes along, he's beginning to preach. Here's the heart of his sermon. Before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for your sins, you must also be troubled about your best duties and performances. Then he said, any poor person... When he is awakened to his obligation before God, immediately flies to his duties and performances to hide himself from God. And he goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. And says he, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do all that I can. And certainly, Jesus will have mercy on me. But before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you ever put up. You must be brought to see that all your duties, all your righteousness, as the prophet so elegantly expresses it, speaking of Jeremiah, put them all together, are so far from recommending you to God, are so far from being any motive or inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul, that he will see them to be filthy rags, that God hates them and cannot away with them if you bring them to him in order to recommend you to his favor. See, God doesn't mind you doing all these good deeds until you're trying to use them to commend yourself to God and earn his favor. And then Whitfield turns around and he says, I do not know what you may think, but I can say that I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or others, but I sin. I cannot do nothing without sin. My repentance wants to be repented of, and my tears to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer, our best duties are as so many splendid sins. 
hearts before you can speak peace in your heart. You must not only be sick of your sin, (coughs) but you must be sick of your righteousness. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol to be taken out of your heart. And the pride of our hearts will not let us submit to the righteousness of Christ. (coughs) Now, you may be thinking, that's the most awful thing I've ever heard. And then it applies even more to you. If you think that's terrible, you're in the same boat. Because he's saying our natural heart on our own, we can't receive the righteousness of Christ. And sometimes religious people are the touchiest and most irritable and prickly people you can find because we're using our religion for ourselves, just like the Israelites did. And they're using it to keep God away, and that's what Whitfield is saying. When a person begins to sense their obligation to God, you can get real religious as a way of keeping God away, as a way of saying, I don't want you to save me out of your mercy. I want to show you I can be good enough on my own. And you use your righteousness to make yourself feel okay and defend yourself against the guilt and anxiety caused by sin. And Whitfield is saying, not only do you have to repent of all the sin, all the bad stuff in your life, you also have to repent of your own righteousness, all the good stuff in your life. And that's really hard. And that's pretty much what Jeremiah is trying to say. Of course, he takes like 50 chapters to say it. Again and again and again and again and again, as we will see. Can you understand why he's the prophet nobody likes? Nobody likes this guy. Nobody. Jeremiah is telling him, your sin is terrible. And your righteousness isn't any better. You've reached the point where you essentially have to repent of everything. So where's the good news? Isn't there any good news? There is. I'm actually excited about this. Because in all my years of preaching, I have never seen this before. I didn't know this until I was studying for this sermon this week. And this was like an aha kind of moment, which I thought was really cool. You may not, but I did. I love this verse, and I have used it countless times. I've used it as a benediction dozens of times. I used it a few weeks ago. I've preached on it at least twice, and I never knew this. And the verse I'm talking about is Matthew 11, 28 and 29, where Jesus is calling to us, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And here's the really cool part. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah 6.16. The Lord comes in that verse and says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And now Jesus turns around and says, Come to me, all who labor heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke And learn from me, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does it mean that Jesus quotes Jeremiah? Well, one thing it means, of course, is that Jesus knows the word of God. He's saturated with the word of God. He understands the scripture so much. It's his heartbeat, his lifeblood, 
He's always alluding to it and referring to it. But it's, what's really cool is he has the ability to take something God said in the Old Testament. And when Jeremiah says it, it's thus says the Lord. But when Jesus says it, it's I say to you. That's a huge change. As Jeremiah, thus says the Lord Jesus, I say to you, come to me. I will give you rest. I'm reminded of a person that I read about recently, a man who's a skeptic. And this is what he said. He said, I'd love to believe in God. It just isn't possible. I'd like to, but if someone would bring me an airtight argument, then I'd be delighted to believe. What does Jesus say to that? Well, here's what he says. God didn't send us an airtight argument. He sent us an airtight person. The airtight person is the airtight argument. Jesus doesn't say, come to this set of reasoning. He says, come to me. Come to me. If you do that, if you look at him, it's an amazing, overwhelming, incredible life. He is the airtight argument. By the way, I don't think he's pitting faith against thinking. He's not saying, don't think, don't reason, just come to me. I think he's saying, if you use your brain, if you do your thinking, you'll find me the airtight argument. God sent us an airtight person. If you wait for the airtight argument first, before you come to him, before you look at him, before you deal with him, you'll wait forever because he is the airtight argument. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to that. Why? What's he saying? He's saying the argument that God has given the way God has shown you he exists, the way God has shows you the truth is a way it works for the uneducated and the ignorant, but also the wise and learned if they're not too wise in their own eyes. Do you see that? It says, come to me. What he offers is himself. The airtight argument is the airtight person. That's who God sends. That's it. Don't wait for an airtight argument because he is the airtight argument. The words of Jeremiah point us to Jesus. Stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. I think that's the good news hidden in the midst of all of this. So think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you once again that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Father, we know our weariness comes from refusing to lay down our own self-righteousness. Our weariness comes from yoking ourselves to things through which we try to prove ourselves. We see our weariness comes from refusing the ancient path where we find rest for our souls. 
For a person just thinking about what it means to be a Christian, for a person who's been at this for many years, this text is life itself. I pray you would make it life for everybody in this room. I pray as we think on these verses, you would start to show us how our weariness really is a soul weariness and how you and you alone can heal it. Show us yourself. Help us see you as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust that the airtight argument is the airtight person, your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.